Bible or some device. We'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. Um, we'll be in Luke chapter 18. As you're turning um, or typing, um, we've we've been in Luke for a while now, um, and and we typically are preaching through a book, just kind of chapter by chapter. We we do that for a couple reasons. Um, one, it forces us to preach passages that we wouldn't typically pick if we're just kind of picking and choosing and bouncing around. Um, and so when when your particular sin is addressed in a passage, you're not going, hey, how did they know? Right? It, it's the Spirit who has outed you. Right? It's the Word of God who's done that. It's also, it does that for when we see things are repeated. Right? That there's an emphasis in that repetition. Things that we need to be mindful of and aware of and, and working on and through. Um, and then we, we typically um, save at least um, half, if not more than that, of, of our singing, our worship through song for after the sermon. And we do that because we want to worship in response to what the Lord has revealed through His Word, believing that He most often, most clearly speaks to us and reveals Himself to us through His Word um, as His Spirit illuminates. And then we worship in response to what we've seen and learned about the character of God. And so just a little bit of recap as we jump into to Luke 18. Last week as we finished chapter 17, uh, we were reminded that the return of Jesus is unknown as to when it will c- occur, but it is certain that it will occur and that it will occur suddenly. And that we are then meant to live in light of the fact that He's going to return. Right? It's, it's, it helps us fight our sin. Um, it gives us hope. It reminds us that there is a plan and a purpose that Jesus will one day split the sky and return for His bride, right? where every knee will bow, some gladly and willingly, and others out of, of fear, realizing they have, they have not um, submitted and trusted Jesus. And so Luke 17 is acting as both a warning to those of us who, who don't yet know Jesus or who are not yet living in light of the re- His return, um, that, that His return means judgment. And yet it's an encouragement to those of us who do know Jesus that His return is actually a rescue. I mean, as we sang even just a moment ago in the song, right, that he is, Jesus is our refuge, what we find is that He is our refuge and our rescue but in the moment of His return, if we have not trusted Him, there is no refuge from Him. Right? He is our refuge, and we want to trust in and delight in Him. And so let's pick up, beginning now, in verse 1 of chapter 18. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And He said... In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice, justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, 
will he find faith on earth? And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So as we read these kind of two parables and a quick um, moment that Jesus had with the children, I want us to consider this section of Scripture in light of verse 22 out of chapter 17. Let me read that to you real quick. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Right? Remember, he is telling them, you're going to long and want to see the return, and you're not going to see it. You're going to want it to happen. And so now he's going to begin to, to minister to and equip them for how to sustain and be faithful in the midst of their longing for the return of Jesus. And so he begins with verse 1, and very rarely does Jesus actually give us insight into what the parable means on the front end, right? But he just tells them, first and foremost, I want to make sure you understand what I'm doing. I'm going to tell you a parable so that you will not lose heart and that you will pray repeatedly. When, what Jesus is saying here is less the idea of praying without ceasing, right? Which, which we see elsewhere in the New Testament. And really it's more, I want you to pray the same like request, the same, the same prayer a lot. I don't want you to lose heart in asking me for the same thing, even if you have to ask for it constantly and regularly. Right? So what are they asking for? So he gives them this parable, and he, he describes a judge who is ruthless, right? And it's like, man, I don't fear God. I don't care what you think about me. Right? This is a man who has enough power that he's not really worried about public perception. Right? He is secure in his role and in his task. And he's not really worried about anyone saying anything about him. Right? It's, it's not the type of judge you want to see. This, this judge is ruthless. He lacks compassion. And I want us to be reminded quickly of what was expected of a judge. This is both from the Old Testament. This is Exodus chapter 22, uh, verse 22. And you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me and I will surely hear their cry. And then if we turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Verse 17, he's speaking again to his people. He says, you shall not pervert the justice that's due to the sojourner, right, the foreigner, or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were once a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there 
Therefore, I command you to do this. And so the, the people of Israel had built into who they were was that they had an eye for the foreigner, for the widow, right, for the orphan, because they were powerless to change their situation. They were going to need right, care and protection and vindication and redemption. And the, the reason that God says, I want you to do this, not only because they have value, but because I've done this for you as a people. When you were enslaved, I rescued you and redeemed you out. So you carry this character that I have. This is a judge who does not have the character of God, who does not fear God nor respect man. And we find a widow who is vulnerable, right? She has no man in this situation, which in that culture would have mattered as a father, a brother, a husband, right? If she is asking on her own behalf, it's because there's no one left to voice anything for her. This is a woman who is vulnerable, who is desperate, who is in dire need of help. And so she has no other option in a hostile environment with an adversary, with an enemy, but to continue to go to the judge. Right? We see in verse 3 that she has an adversary. Most likely, this has something to do with finance. Right? That whether it was um, money that was owed to her so that she could care for herself, she is not getting it. And so she is going, I have, I have no options here. And so she goes to the judge. And the judge is like, I don't care. So she goes to the judge, and she goes to the judge, and she goes to the judge. And I love the language here. For a while he refused. Right? Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Right? What it says is she has become a nuisance and she has gotten on his last nerve. It's not because all of a sudden he has compassion or sees um, the justice in the situation. It's like, lady, stop. If you have a child, you have been in this moment, right? Right? A grandchild, right? Potentially a neighbor child, right? They just are like asking over and over and over and over and oh, and you, you're just like, I'm going to lose my mind. And you feel physically like attacked and beaten. Like you're emotionally distraught. And you're just like, I don't, I don't want to give in, but I have, like, you have got to stop. Right? This judge has had a woman do this to him. Right? And as, as this story goes on, right, Jesus then she gets the justice that she has longed for and rightly wanted and needed. And Jesus then says, look at verse 6, you heard what the unrighteous judge says, like he gave her justice. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Listen, what he's arguing here, the way this parable works is lesser to greater. So he's like if an unjust man who doesn't care about people, who doesn't fear God, if he's willing to give justice because the request has come over and over again, how much more so would a compassionate father do that? Who actually does care, who sees you, who hears you, and who wants to care for you? How much more? So if this man did it, how much more so will God do it? And so he is encouraging them, keep praying. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired in asking God to meet your needs. When he says... Will God not give justice to His elect? He's reminding us that there are 
there's a, there's a chosen people, right? He refers to Israel often as his elect people, his chosen people. That there are those who are going to be um, on the side of God and those who are apart. He's saying those who are trusting me, who are following me, right? They're going to get justice. He says they pray day and night. It's a reminder that we are to live in light of the fact that we believe Jesus is coming back and that He's alive, that He has defeated sin and death and Satan. And because He's alive, we have someone to pray to. We have access to Him, and He's going to come and make things right. So we keep asking. He's encouraging them. Even when you want to see Me come, keep asking. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now listen, I would imagine if the disciples knew that 2,000 years were going to go by, they might question Jesus saying that he would give them justice speedily. But we have to keep in mind, in comparison to eternity, in comparison to the clock stopping and it just goes right like we're just in eternity, he is giving justice speedily. That it will be light Right, we will be able to say it was light and momentary anything we face in this life compared to the surpassing weight of glory that is coming for eternity, for all time. Right, so he's saying, listen, it is going to come with certainty. It is going to come assuredly. But there's a lot of opportunity for, for drifting and for unfaithfulness. Look at how he continues verse 8. Listen, he's saying, I'm going, there is a plan, it is coming, justice is coming. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Right? Because last week in, in chapter 17, we were reminded, right, that in, in, in Noah's days, it was mostly a lack of faithfulness. People were wicked, and then judgment came. And in Lot's days, when, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, right, there were a few saved, but it was mostly unfaithfulness. And he is saying that when the Son of Man, when Jesus returns, people will be just going about their days and going about their lives. And he's saying, but will anyone be faithful? Right? He's, he's reminding them that there's opportunity here to drift and to walk away. He says, but I don't want you to give up. There is a plan. Church, would we be encouraged here that God hears us? That justice is coming in His return that evil will be removed. It will be seen and known and revealed, and justice will come. And already we have glimpses of that, but it will come in fullness and completely. And so he says, pray with grit. Don't give up. Keep taking these requests before the Lord. Church, this morning, would you be encouraged by this, that He is speaking also to us, saying, don't give up. Don't quit praying Come to me. Pray with grit. So what are some ways we can do that? What, just a couple practical things here. Listen, if we just kind of have prayer be this big, wide-open thing, it can feel um, overwhelming. But if you will begin to just notate, journal, however you want to do it, whether it's in your phone, whether it's in a journal, whether it's on a calendar, if you will just begin to write down hey, who am I praying for and what am I praying for them? You will begin to see God, right, when He answers those prayers, they weren't just like poof and gone. They're tied back to something that I was praying for this for a day. I was praying for this for a week. I was praying for this for a year. 
I was praying for this for a decade, right? Or whatever it is. God, I have, I have been praying that you would do this and you've done it. And you get to tie it back to something. Because you've written it down and you've notated it and you've written Scripture along with it and you've written prayers along with it. Listen, writing your, your request or your prayers and having them somewhere, even if it's for your eyes only, right, is a way for you to pray with grit and to not grow weary in praying. Praying along with Scripture as well. Right? That as you're reading through this and going, that He says, okay, I don't want you to lose heart. And you're like, okay, I haven't lost heart. I'm, I'm good today. I've had seasons where I'm not, but I'm good today. Oh, but I know a sister or a brother who seems like they're beginning to grow weary. God, Luke 18, 1, I'm praying that fill in the blank would not lose heart. Right? It's, so you're letting Scripture guide your prayers for people. And then you're notating and writing down what those prayer requests are. And then you're going back and saying, God's answered this. Or, I, or because I've been praying this, now I have a verse to go and specifically pray. And so now I'm going to write, right, I'm going to write Carmen's name down. And then I'm going to write this verse that God's shown me and this request that I have for her. And when God has intervened, right, and now I can go back and almost have like a running encyclopedia of God's faithfulness to meet our prayer. It helps then when we wake up in the morning and simply say, "Hey God, I gotta pray. Bless everybody. I don't, I don't know, right? Because it feels like it's too. There's too many faces. There's too many situations. There's too many names that we need a plan and a system to do this, so that we are encouraged to not give up in it. Listen, if you really don't have any idea on how to do that, it's okay." But as you look around the room and you say, man, that person's a prayer person. Like they're a prayer warrior. Ask them, hey, what is it that you do? Like, can, I, can I take you to lunch? Can I take you to coffee? And will you just walk me through what your plan is? There is no perfect one-size-fits-all plan. Right? But, but there are many of you who have tweaked and found ways to do this so that you are walking faithfully where you are praying certainly and you are not losing heart or growing weary in doing this. And would you be glad to share those, and others of us would be glad to ask for, for how we can do that better. Let's move on to the second parable. As he continues to talk about prayer, continuing to encourage us on how not to lose heart, he then tells, and again, he gives us some insight into what the parable is going to mean. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, and treating others with contempt. So basically, he's talking to the disciples. There's a larger um, audience around him of Pharisees and those who are just in the crowd. And so as he's spoken directly to the disciples, now he says, hey, some of you, right? And he's looking out at them. He says, some of you trust in yourselves. You're not trusting in me. And he tells a story. And he begins with a Pharisee. And he says, they, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both go up to pray. Now listen, we hear this story opposite of how they would have heard it. When we hear Pharisee, we think, ooh, bad. When we hear tax collector, we're like, there might be some hope here for them. That's not how they would have heard it. They would have heard Pharisee is religiously rigorous, right? They're faithful. They go above and beyond all that's required of them. They're highly respected. They're sought out in the, in the culture. Tax collector's a traitor. They're treasonous. They're like the enemy of the people. They work for the 
for the government. And it's a government that's come in and has overpowered us. So they would have heard this and flipped the roles. And so the Pharisee is someone who's obedient and listen to him. He that begins to list his credentials. He goes, I fast, in verse 12, twice a week. The requirements for fasting in Israel were was one day a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the day that you were expected to fast. Otherwise, anything above that, right, is you're saying, and he's saying, I'm fasting twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays, Pharisees fasted. And then he says, not only that, but I tithe on all that I get. Tithes were on certain things, not on everything. And he's saying, I'm tithing on everything. So he's saying, I'm going above and beyond the law and the expectation. I'm doing even more. God is impressed with me. So listen to the way he prays. Standing by himself in the temple, praying thus, God, thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you that I'm not like extortioners or unjust or adulterers, or like, and then he points to a specific, and goes, or that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes on all that I get. Like, it is a disturbing prayer. Because do you notice he starts off with thanksgiving like it's going to actually be a prayer? God, I thank you. Great start. And then where does it go? Because I'm great. Look at what I've... There's nothing about what God has done or who God is or what He's asking of the God. He's simply saying, God, I thank You that I rock. That I am awesome. Maybe it's God, thank You that You've even reminded me of how good I am because that guy's standing there. Like it's, it's, it's loathsome. And we're meant to see this sharp contrast with the tax collector. Look at verse 13. The tax collector is standing far off. Right? You, you, you see timidity. Right? Unworthiness of like, I, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to kind of be over here in the corner where people aren't noticing that it's me or seeing me. He cannot even lift his eyes to heaven. Right? So we see the, tax, or the, the Pharisee is like, God, thank you that I am me. Collector with his eyes down, beating his chest. God, be merciful to me. Who am I? I'm a sinner. Raw, simple, honest, desperate prayer. Jesus then says, I tell you, this man, this one, the tax collector, the sinner, the one that wouldn't even look up. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He, his prayer was heard by God. He was given mercy. It was received as he would have wanted and longed for. And the audience would have then heard, and the Pharisee was not. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And church, would we pause for just a second and say, if you are the tax collector, the one who can't lift your eyes, who simply want to beat your chest, who, right, as you're thinking, I am wicked 
and I'm not sure that God sees me or cares or will have mercy upon me. He does. This is available to everyone. And as you cry out and say, God, my laundry list of sins is impressive. And I'm begging you for mercy. You will receive mercy. It is powerful and it is hopeful when we humble ourselves before God. The Pharisee here is trusting something other than Jesus. For his, for his redemption, for His mercy, he is trusting himself in his own morality. And remember, one of Luke's favorite things to do is to remind us and to show us the reversals that the kingdom of God brings. I want to read through Luke real quick and give you just a few of these. The first is in Luke chapter 1, verse 49. Listen to this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And here's the reversals. He's scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Right? So you're seeing, he's saying, when I come, the kingdom's going to come to bear, and things are going to be reversed. Right? What you don't have, you're going to have, and what you might have, you're going to lose. Right? Depending upon me. Let's, let's continue. Uh, verse 79. He's going to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We see this in this tax collector who is in need, and he's going to get what he needs. We go over to chapter 2, verse 34. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child, meaning Jesus, is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Right? Like he's saying, it's going to be a, a tumultuous time where those who currently believe they're in power, where they're the ones who Jesus right, will exalt, are going to find themselves humbled, and those who feel unseen and not belonging, with no power, right, are going to find themselves, as they trust Jesus, redeemed and restored. We can go over to chapter 3, verse 5. Right? John the Baptist says, Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked will become straight. The rough places will become level ways. He's talking about the kingdom coming and Jesus arriving on the scene. And then in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus is speaking in the synagogue and He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke is showing us that when Jesus speaks, reversals happen. And the one who is exalting himself here does not find mercy. And the one who is begging for mercy finds it and is exalted because he receives what he is needing. Church, Jesus takes the poor in spirit and makes them rich in spirit. He takes the weak, and He makes them strong. He takes the lonely, and makes them belong. He takes the dirty, and the impure, and He makes them clean. He takes the guilty, and makes them innocent. He takes the lost, and He finds them. And we could continue with all the reversals that He's going to do, that He has done, 
that you could testify to how God, you were this and now you're this in Jesus. That is what the kingdom of God is doing. It's what Jesus has come for to reverse and to restore and to make right. So he continues because we have this man humbling himself. And then Jesus continues, right, in verse 15. And now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Right, and so the idea in, in, in this culture was, like in our culture, right, children, maybe it would be too far to say they're idolized, but they're seen as, as innocent, as pure, right, as this like, thing that we all rally around to protect and to keep. That, that's not necessarily the culture that, that they're living in. Infant mortality was super high, right? In Roman culture, there were even right, times where you would just go and leave a child in the wilderness, right? That, that it was more like, hey, when you become... Um, working age, marrying age, you begin to contribute to the family, that value went up. And so, for the disciples, they're watching people bother Jesus by bringing children and infants. Why are they being brought? Because they're wanting a blessing. They're hoping that if Jesus prays or touches or blesses their child, maybe my child will live, right? We'll make it. But the disciples are kind of following the culture and going, there are more important people to deal with right now. This is a waste of time. And look at what Jesus says. When the disciples saw it, they rebu- and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus, in verse 16, called them to him, saying, "Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God." We just saw a man who humbled himself in prayer. And now we have some children who don't actually have a resume at all. They haven't done anything to earn merit, to gain favor. They are completely helpless and dependent and needing. And Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to enter the kingdom. That they are utterly dependent upon Him. And this is where our pride then wells up in us and goes, ah! I don't want to be, I, I know I'm dependent. I don't want to be utterly dependent. Like, I bring something to the table, right? Like, I'll be a good dad, or I'll be a good husband, or God, God I'll work for you. Like, let me, let me pay you back a little bit, right? And he says, no, no, no. No, no, no. You are completely in need. You bring nothing to the table except the sin that required Jesus' And he says, but when you come as a child dependent, knowing you're dependent, asking for mercy, you're going to find it. You're going to find it. And so let's, let's put these three together then quickly. He begins with a call to persevere in prayer, that we're going to need to persevere in prayer because the days will be difficult. It is a reminder, right, in light of verse 22 of chapter 17, he is telling them, and then with the unjust judge, church, we're vulnerable. The widow was vulnerable. An infant is vulnerable. And Christians, you're vulnerable because you live in hostility in a world that is opposed and against you. And so unjust actions are going to happen in unjust ways in an unjust world. Saying, I know this. 
And in that, you're going to need to cry out and to pray to me for justice to happen and keep asking for it. Because no matter how difficult your life is or how unjust your life is, that part is temporary. Redemption and vindication is coming. And it will be for eternity. Right? It is coming. So keep asking. Keep persevering. Keep requesting. Keep asking for justice because God sees you. He hears you. He cares for you. And mercy is available. And then... He reminds them, don't just persevere in prayer, but be humble in prayer. That you would see yourselves rightly as dependent. That we don't come before God and say, so God, listen, um, we started a church. Um, been married for 20 years, right? Haven't have been faithful in that. God, and right, we start listing the things and say, so, here's my request, because I'm awesome. We don't we don't do that. We come seeing ourselves rightly as those who are in need of rescue and have received rescue, those who are in need of redemption and having received redemption, and coming and asking Him in humility, God, would You work and would You answer and would You move for my good but for Your glory? Listen to what, how Paul says this. This is Philippians chapter 3. He says this in verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? He says, listen, look at my resume. Look at mine. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain, gain Christ. Be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, that I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. He says, I had the resume, and it's trash. It is garbage. I want Jesus. And Him only. I need Him. That got me nothing. It gained me nothing. And so Paul then is humble, saying, Jesus, I just want You. I just need You. And so what, the, what Luke 18 is doing is it's asking us, continue to pray, persevere, and be humble in that prayer because you can trust the character of God. You can trust that He cares and that He hears you and that He sees you and that He's gracious. Right? Chapter 11 tells us that He gives us good gifts. And so, like an infant is dependent upon their parents to provide for them. We are dependent upon a good God who has good character to provide for us. And a good parent, right, will give a child what they need when they need it. And if there is a delay in them getting something, or if the answer is a no, it's for a good reason. Would we trust that with Jesus? That when we ask for something, He will give us what we need when we need it. And if there's a no 
or delay, it is for good reason and good cause because he is of good character. He is capable and able and willing, but he's good, and he will do what we he will do what we most need for our good and for his glory. And the last thing is this that we come as children, trusting and depending upon him, because we see that even morality is not enough. The Pharisee was moral and he left unjustified without receiving mercy because he was confident in his morality to save. Jesus saves us. Not our resume, not our morality, not our obedience. Jesus. Jesus is who saves us. And He is with us and He doesn't forsake us and He gives us what we need. And sometimes that is painful and it is difficult because He removes things from us. And I want want you to hear the same Paul who we just heard from in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 8. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Some of you have been in that moment. Some of you maybe are in that moment, or you know someone in that moment who's going, life is, circumstances are so difficult, I'm not sure life is worth it. The same one who says, I'll count everything as rubbish to have Jesus. But listen, why? Why does he feel that? Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And then He invites them to pray and to trust and thank God. God will remove from us those things that are seeking to destroy us. Those things that we're hoping in and clinging to other than Him. So this morning, would we be a people who would trust and have confidence in the mercy of Jesus, not in our own merit? Church, that we would have confidence in the mercy of Jesus, not in our own merit, so that none of us would boast. And that we would trust that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, that Jesus is faithful and that He is working and He is opening our eyes and our spirits to see what is happening so that we would be refined more and more into the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we... Now, we we come as a people who often despair. We despair in our circumstances, we despair in persevering. We despair in, in the call to be faithful to pray. That we're, we're not faithful apart from You. And so Lord, right now, would You meet us in our needs, in our circumstances? Lord, would we leave today believing and trusting that Your character is good, that we can depend upon You, that You see us, and as a good Father, You will give us what we need when we need it for our good and for Your glory. Lord, that You will sustain us, that You will not leave us nor forsake us when the answer is no or not yet. 
And Lord, that when you return, that your church would be found expectant and watchful, living in light of your return, persevering in humble, dependent, trustworthy prayer. God, shape us into those people. In Jesus' name, amen.